0: Good morning again. Uh, Welcome again to Midtown 12 South. My name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here. Uh, I haven't been here the last couple of weeks. Um, Daryl, the assistant pastor, preached for us, and I heard that... uh when he was preaching, he was kind of letting you know about my trials and tribulations. Um, I was traveling solo uh, on a trip uh, with my four kids, and my wife was unable to go. Um, and then we got stuck last Sunday in the Denver airport coming back uh, with four kids. It was great. I was ready to burn the Denver airport to the ground. Um, anybody here work for Southwest? Because I got some words for your boss. Um, but uh, Daryl also, I heard in his sermon while he was kind of setting it up and letting you know, you know where I was, or just saying it's been a hard week. Um, He said, feel free to Venmo Elliot some cash. Um, That's still true. Uh, But uh, only one of you did, $15. I was able to buy all four of my kids one chicken nugget. So thank you. (laughs) I'm kidding. Uh, But then I got back for like 12 hours and I was at denominational meetings uh, for our, our annual gathering which is as fun as it sounds, uh, in Birmingham all week. Um, And so I'm here, I'm alive. Uh, Thank you for your $15, Uh, we made it. But um, yeah, this summer we're studying the Apostles' Creed together. Um, we're looking at this historic confession of the Christian church uh, that uh, really many believe were written down by the apostles. Now, it was, uh, or at least uh, it, was, it was created by the apostles. It wasn't written down until potentially the second or third century, but orally passed down, like from the inception of the church uh, in Jerusalem, the church has been confessing these truths that we just confessed. That was what that last thing we read, the Apostles' Creed. Um, it's the earliest written form of a confession of what the the church believes the Bible teaches about ultimate things. That's what we just confessed. It's rooted in Scripture, but here's what is is really beautiful about it, this Apostles' Creed really stretches far and wide across all Christendom, that Eastern, Western, Catholic, Protestant, Episcopalian, Anglican, all of us, if you are a Bible-believing Christian, you believe the Apostles' Creed. You may not know this is what you believe, but if you believe in the Bible, this is what we believe it teaches. Every branch of the church for thousands of years has confessed these core beliefs of our faith. And in some ways, when you read it and we confess it together, it may sound elementary. It may sound like, well, yeah, of course, I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe, I believe, I believe. And it may sound elementary. It may sound like those are basic realities of the Christian faith. But part of it is meant to, yes, be elementary. Like, yes, these are the core beliefs of what the church has always believed to be true. But what's more profound as we kind of lean into it and we will confess it and walk through it all summer is that the more we talk about these historically elementary and basic things about our faith, the more mysterious they become. Like, do you know what you just confessed? You just, you just said you believe, you just said you confess that God became a man in the person of Jesus. And he was conceived mysteriously through a virgin birth. You just confess that you believe in life after death. You just confess that you believe that your body, there will be a bodily resurrection one day. You believe that, because that's what the Bible teaches. And so yes, it sounds like these basic tenets, it sounds like these elementary things, but we believe this collision of the elementary and the mysterious together is what it means to be a Christian. Yes, this is, this is what the Bible teaches very plainly, and I can't believe I believe this. This is unbelievable. This is, this is oh, but w- this is what the Bible teaches us, and this is this mystery. And we confess them together because the Christian is like one who has inherited this vast estate, You are a child of inheritance. You are co-heirs with Jesus, that all that belongs to Jesus now belongs to you. And as a Christian, you have inherited this vast estate. And as someone who has inherited a vast estate, you can't take in all that you've inherited on one look through the document. You need to like visit the assets. You need to like go visit the real estate. You need to like read and reread the inheritance again and again and to go, these are the riches that are mine This is what I believe again and again and again, and we confess it and we confess it. Don't forget it. Don't forget that you believe this vast inheritance that is already yours in Jesus. So when we walk through the Apostles' Creed this summer, we're not trying to add to what you believe. We're trying to say, hey, Christian, if you are a Christian, this is what you believe because this is what the Bible says is true. And so today's line of the confession is quite central to the whole thing. Many commentators on the um, Apostles' Creed would say that this is kind of the center hub that all the other spokes find their meaning and root in. Uh, Two weeks ago, Daryl looked at just the first words, I believe. What does it mean to be a people of confession? What do we believe and what is belief? That everybody, secular or religious, has a creed. Everybody, secular or religious, has a belief system. This is what we believe And then last week, we looked at, I believe in that next line, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, that you have a mighty father that treats you father-like. Looked at the story of the prodigal son. um, Daryl walked through that. And then, this week, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And now this line, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, what's important about this to be the centerpiece of, of our confession is that the centerpiece of Christian confession is not a doctrine, but a person. The centerpiece of Christian confession is not theology, it's humanity that God put skin on in the person of Jesus. And that is the centerpiece, that it's a relational religion by definition because we confess that we believe in a person, not a system of beliefs. We confess in the divinity and the majesty of God's son, Jesus. And the confession says a couple things about him. I believe in Jesus Christ, those names are very important, his only son, our Lord. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, Our Lord. What does that mean? It means, in summary, that at the center of our belief about Jesus is that as God's only true Son, Jesus reveals who God truly is. As God's only true son, Jesus reveals who God truly is. This was in our call to worship in Hebrews chapter one. We believe that Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of God. He is the visible of the invisible God that Jesus fully displays to the world who God is. As the one who purely and perfectly displays to the world who God is, that means he is God. And because he is God, he can perfectly and purely display to the world who God is. There's certainly some Trinitarian mystery here that we won't try to unpack that Jesus is God and Jesus is God's son, but as God's only son, Jesus reveals who God truly is. In fact, when Jesus was going around in his earthly ministry talking about claiming to be God's only son, the Pharisees wanted to crucify him for it. You can't claim to be God's son and not be claiming at the same time to be equal with God. Let's kill you for that. That's heresy for a Jew. You, can, you are not equal with Yahweh. But Jesus, we believe, as God's son, fully represents all the mystery of who God truly is. N.T. Wright, who is a very well-known, probably the, the, the most well-renowned New Testament scholar alive today and historian, he's brilliant. He worked at Oxford for years. When he was at Oxford, he was kind of the priest or the rector and he would meet with all these incoming students all across Oxford as, as first-time students. as Their first semester, they would sit down with the priest and he would always sit down with them and they would say, I know you're the priest. I know you're kind of doing this like out of you know, diligence and, and you have to, you're obligated to come sit down with me. I don't believe in God. And N.T. Wright would always say to them, that's interesting, which God don't you believe in? And they would be taken aback and and they would say, oh, well, you know, and some version of, I don't believe in this spy in the sky. He calls it like disappointed, angry deity that is just throwing lightning rods from heaven. And I don't believe, I don't believe in that God. And N.T. Wright would say, that's interesting because I don't believe in that God either. And they would say, well, which, which God do you believe in? And he would say, I believe in the God that is fully represented in Jesus of Nazareth. I believe in that God. You want to explore him with me? You want to get to know the God of the Bible? You want to get to know who God is and what he's like? We need to study Jesus because Jesus is the exact representation of his image. Jesus is the visible of the invisible God. Jesus is God, and as God, he is Lord. Jesus is the window into the mystery of God. So who is he? What does Jesus reveal to us about who God is and what he's like? What does Jesus show us about God? What invisible realities does Jesus make visible? Before we dive into our passage that will show us some of these visible realities of Jesus, I need to just set it up by saying there's a lot of what is known as Christology that we're gonna be diving into today. That's the like, theology of Christ. That's the doctrine study of Jesus. There's a lot of theology. There's a lot of Christology today. And whenever we talk about theology, it would be really easy to believe that, hey, you need to know all these right answers for the test. There's no test. Jesus already took the test for you and got an A, you're good. We're not, we're not wanting you to like have all the right answers so that you can have all the right answers. Here's why we study theology. Here's why we study high and heavy Christology like we're gonna look at today. Some deep realities is this. We believe that none of us in the room see Jesus clearly. We live in a fallen world and the Bible says we see through a glass dimly, like there's fog on the window. We can't see through it yet yet. We don't believe we see Jesus as well as you might know Jesus. We don't believe you see him the way you should see him yet. But what the book of 1 John says is that one day when Jesus returns, we will all see Jesus clearly. And here's what 1 John 3 says. When you see Jesus for who he is, you will instantly be like him. That the more you see Jesus for who he truly is, the more you become like him. And we see through a glass dimly right now, but we're trying to kind of constantly wipe the fog off and say, but who is the real Jesus? Who is he? Because when we see him, we will be like him. Because you will be moved by his beauty. You will be moved by his majesty. You will be moved by his love and his affection. You will be moved by his transcendent nature and what he's come to do. So we wanna see Jesus clearly, not for theology's sake, but for our affection's sake because the more you see Jesus, the more you will be like him because you will be raptured by his beauty. So we're gonna study Jesus today and talk about some theology. We're doing it that we might see him, that we might be like him. So what does the Bible say about Jesus? Not gonna cover all of it, but what does the Bible say in relationship to our line? We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. We're gonna study Philippians chapter two today, just six verses from Philippians chapter two tells us much of what Jesus reveals to you about God, that we might see Jesus clearly. Starting in verse five of Philippians chapter two. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. It's the word of Lord. Amen. So, um... What many scholars believe, it may not appear this way if you had your like uh, actual Bible in front of you, uh, but some versions do what most scholars think is accurate about what we just read. Most scholars think that verse 6 through 11 of that section of Philippians chapter 2 was actually a first century song or hymn, like the first CCM you know, chart topper, I guess. Um, like it was a widely known hymn. And so in some Bibles, it appears like in poetry form, in prose form, that Paul is, is using this hymn, this song and saying, this is what we believe about Jesus. And so what does this song of Jesus teach us? What does it show us? Throw up verse six one more time. We're gonna walk through this uh, slowly. Verse six says this, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse seven, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Okay, here's what Paul just told you. First basic thing that Paul just confessed to you or that that we believe as as a confessing community. The Jesus of scripture did not start existing at Christmas. Now we celebrate what's known as the incarnation at Christmas, but what Paul just told you is that long before Jesus was born in a manger, he existed with the Godhead from eternity past. He was equal with God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he put on human skin to come and dwell among men. And what we need to start there, why we need to start there is this, is because the incarnation, the the fleshing of God, God becoming man is potentially the most mind-blowing event in human history. Like even maybe more so than the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, these other massive things. Because the incarnation is when, it's the moment when the infinite became finite. It's the moment when the eternal became temporal It's the moment when the creator became the created. It's the moment when the transcendent became imminent. It's the moment that the infinite one put skin on and could now be wounded by his creation. That's unbelievable. That's what Philippians 2 just told you, you believe. I believe that God in the person of Jesus existed from eternity past. He was equal with God. And then by a choice choice of his own, from his own volition, decided to put on human skin. And it would be easy to think, this is partially what Paul's doing in juxtaposing the nature of Jesus versus the nature of humanity is this. It's really easy to think, because we've got a lot of evidence of it, that when you are in power or when people are in power or in influence, they only make decisions to increase their power or influence. Or when people have glory, they're only always trying to spin things to get more glory. And what Paul just told you is that Jesus had power, Jesus had glory, but his actions were not driven by what normally drives human action. People in power want more power. People with glory want more glory. Not so with Jesus. Jesus didn't come to use you to get more glory for himself. He already had glory. He was equal with God. He already had power. He already had transcendence. He already had everything he ever needed. What Paul just said in Philippians 2 is he didn't hold on to that power for his own sake. Jesus came not to use you to get more glory for himself. He came to use himself to give you glory. That's what Philippians 2 just said. Jesus did not think of his equality with God as a thing to be grasped. That phrase right there is when you grasp something the way that Paul's talking about is I'm using a resource that's available to me for my own advantage, And what Paul just said about Jesus is this resource that was available to him, equality with God, dominion and power and glory forever and ever, amen. All that was his, but he didn't grasp onto that to use it for his own advantage. No, he used what he had to use it for your advantage. Christ took what he had and used it for the good of you and the good of the world. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So how did he do that? How did Jesus use his glory and use his power and position for the good of others and not for his own sake? And this is where Paul takes the reader. And this is where like this mystery of Jesus, we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord. This is where when we say this, the mystery of this and the beauty of this continues to be like, you can't suss out all the treasure. It's like the gold in the Lonely Mountain in The Hobbit. Okay, it's like you can't, no, no one's nodding. Okay, okay. Tolkien wrote this book, okay, called The Hobbit. And like, there's too much treasure. There's too much treasure to suss out. There's too much to take for yourself. It is almost endless that you would never be able to fully understand the beauty of Jesus. Because listen to what Paul says. It's more than you can handle. It's more than we can handle about Jesus. Verse six says this, one little line in verse six. Though he was in the form of God. Okay, when Paul says he was in the form of God, that word form is the Greek word morphe. It's where we get our English word metamorphosis. Or morphology. It means the form of something, the outward expression of something. And what it means is is that morphe, that form, that expression fully embodies the internal reality that it is trying to show you, like an angry expression on your face. That morphe, that form, fully embodies the anger that you're feeling that is unseen. It's making this unseen thing a reality, and there's a one-to-one ratio. Your facial expressions are fully communicating to me the anger you feel within, That's the morphe, that's the form. It fully embodies, it fully expresses the invisible reality. When it says right there that Jesus was in the morphe, God, it's saying he is perfectly expressing the inner reality. What was his inner reality? God. Jesus perfectly morphes, perfectly forms, perfectly shows you what God is like. That Jesus Christ is the very substance of God. He is the very God of very God. He is in very nature God. He is in the very being God. And then, okay, so that's, that's like part one. Then verse seven, look at what he says in verse seven. This Jesus, who was very God, in perfect morphe, God, fully embodying the invisible reality of God, emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Okay, Paul does something really intentional here with this language. When it says Jesus was in form, in morphe, God, and then the next line says he was in form, in morphe, a servant, Here's what Paul is doing. In the same way that the one who is in the very nature of God fully expresses the invisible reality of God also says that he took on the form, morphe, of a servant. The seen reality of an invisible thing. Paul used the same word in both lines because he's saying this, the form of God is the form of a servant. I know no one wants to go back to like eighth grade algebra, but here's what Paul just did. If A equals B and B equals C, A equals C. Here's what he's saying. Jesus was in very nature, very form, God. He was also in the very form and very nature, a servant, because God is a servant. And I'm equating you and showing you Jesus fully embodied God. He also fully embodied what it means to be a servant. And he didn't lose any of his inner realities in those two extremes, because God is a servant. It's the same thing. He's using the same word again to show you the continuing existence of the realities that he is expressing. Jesus is God, and Jesus was a servant, which means the very nature of God is to be a servant. And all of that is held together in the tension of the God-man, Jesus. When Jesus came to serve, he wasn't adding to characteristics of God that weren't previously true. Jesus was embodying and expressing who God is and who is God, he's a servant. That's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, his disciples are fighting over who's gonna be seated where when the kingdom comes and Jesus says, hey, y'all are missing it because the son of man didn't come to be served, he came to serve. That's why I came, I came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When the world got to see Jesus, God with human skin on, they got to see what God is really like. And what is God really like? He is a servant. The infinite one, the transcendent one, the creator of the stars at night, the Lord of nature and the Lord of power is also a servant. In other words, Jesus wasn't losing his identity as God when he came to serve Jesus was proving his identity as God when he came to serve, because God is a servant. That's who God is. And as God, and as God's son, I know that's trinitarianly confusing, but as God, and as God's son, Jesus took his servant nature and carried it out to the infinite degree. This is what he says in verse eight. He's saying he was in the In the form, in the morphe, God. And in the form, in the morphe, a servant. And those two things colliding and holding together for God to come with skin on and be a servant looks like verse eight. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In order to fully reveal who he was to the world as God, Jesus gave himself away for the sake of the world, even death on a cross. So when we confess, like we just did, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. We're saying that lordship, kingship, and cross go together. Jesus, that's that's what that word means. Jesus means God saves. Jesus came to save. Jesus came to suffer. Jesus came to serve. He also came to be the king. That's why he's our Lord. And when you combine those two things together, here's what you start to see. The cross was the throne Jesus came to sit on. The cross was where the servant king was showing you who he really was. The cross is the moment of God's greatest self-revelation. You want to know what the God of the Bible is like? Behold, your king spread naked on crossbeams. That's your God. That's the God of the Bible because Jesus was in the Morphe God and the Morphe servant, and look where it took him. The suffering servant is also the king of the kingdom. And as members of his kingdom, Paul says this too in our chapter in Philippians 2 we now are also urged of seeing power and position and authority in the same way. That's what Paul says in verse five. Look at verse five one more time. Well, he says this, have this mind among yourselves, have this same mind in your mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Treat others this way. He's saying, if you have any position, any power, any influence, like if you're a big brother, or big sister, you have some influence and some power. If you're a parent, if, you, if, you, if you're an employee, you have influence. If you have any position of any power, if you're a mother, if you have any position of influence, use that place to serve people, to enhance people, to nourish people, to nurture people, to make them more beautiful. Why? Because that's what your Lord has done for you. Jesus had more authority and more power than you could fathom. He spun the universe by the word of his power. He is the, in, he is the visible of the invisible God. Psalm 110 says that Jesus, may, as the king, makes all the rulers and authorities of the world his footstool. <laughs> it's throwing so much shade at people in power in the world. It's saying, Jesus props his feet upon you. Like, you don't have power. Jesus has power, and he gives you some of his power, but he uses you like a footstool, Colossians chapter one says that all things were made for him and by him and through him. All things. That guy, that king, what did he do with his power and position? He served you with it. That's what he chose to do with his power and his position. He served you with it. He knew who he was. He knew what was his. And because he knew who he was and because he knew what was his, he was actually secure enough to serve you. That, that flips how we like to think about service on its head, I know, but that's what John chapter 13 says. In the upper room, the last supper, right before he's going to give his life away and be betrayed, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Do you know right before he washes their feet, including Judas, right before he washes their feet, do you know it's what John tells us about Jesus' state of mind right before he did that? It says, knowing that the father had given him all things and knowing where he had come from and where he was going, he got down on a bended knee and served his disciples. He was so secure. He had everything he could possibly need because he had all that he served. We serve to get things. Let me serve you so that my reputation will grow. Let me serve you so that you'll think a certain way about me. Let me serve you so that I can think a certain way about me. Let me serve you so that I can hold you in my debt and hold it over your head. Like, you know, I mean, I, I kind of done the thing. So, you know, you kind of, you owe me the thing now. Like, the, 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 we serve to get things. Dave Burden, one of our Midtown pastors says, uh, we serve typically in this mantra, we serve with a for you, for me. Like, this is for you, but really, really it's for me. And all of our service is typically done with this, but what am I gonna get back from this? How are you gonna treat me now that I'm serving you? What are you gonna think about me now that I'm serving you? Why do I need to serve you in order to get something back from you? That's not at all why Jesus served, we're told. Jesus served because he didn't need any of those things. He already had all that he needed. He already had all the position, all the authority, all the power. He already had all that he could possibly need. And because of that, because he was secure, he served. This is what the church has the opportunity to do. Not just for like the watching world, but like for your home. Like the church has the ability to do this for your coworkers, for your roommates, for your family, for your kids, for your parents. We have the ability to take and show what true position and true power are to be used for. Jesus didn't use true position and true power to get more of it. He used it. He leveraged it to give it away. That's what the church is called to do. Have this mind in yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves. Treat other people this way. That's what members of the kingdom do because that's what our king has done for us. And when we confess... We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. We're saying the Jesus who saved me is also the Jesus who is king and that's what the kingdom's about. So Midtown 12 South, do you wanna know what God is really like? Do you wanna know what he thinks about you? Do you wanna know what he thinks you're worth? Do you wanna know how God considers you? Do you wanna know what the heart of God is beating for? The way that we confess we would know how to answer that question is by looking at Jesus. What is God like? What does he think of me? What is his heart towards me? Well, he's invisible, so how can I know who, what the invisible God is like? I look at Jesus, who is the visible of the invisible God. And here's the point of all this Christology and all this theology and all this study of the God-man Jesus, who was in the morphe, the very form God, and the morphe, the very form of a servant. We take all that, and the reader and the listener is meant to behold the magnificence of the God-man Jesus, and as you consider his humility to stoop down and serve you and how he used his power, all of this is saying to you, this is what you were worth to him. This is what he feels about you. Not how you feel that he feels about you. This is how he feels about you. He doesn't think that his mission got a bad return on investment with you. He doesn't stand at the end of his work and think that it was a waste. He doesn't look back at his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and think, I didn't get all that I went for. Jesus came to serve because that's who he is and what did he get at the end of it? His bride. In other words, the infinite one who came to serve didn't need you. He wanted you. He wanted to have you. So he used his position as the God man to serve. He wasn't lacking anything. He was already God. He wasn't serving you like we serve to hold it over your head so that you would be in his debt. He was serving you because that's what God does and that's who Jesus is. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord. And when we confess it, we are saying behold this mystery, behold this king. He's worthy to be followed. He's worthy to be trusted. He's worthy to be praised. Let's pray. Jesus, um, behold our King. Behold the one who um, leveraged all of your resources, all of them, infinite resources, for the sake of your bride, the church. And so Jesus, the God-man, the mysterious one, I pray in these next few moments as we sing and even confess more what we believe, that we would be caught up not just in the theology of what we believe to be true but you would give us the gift of having what we know in our heads or say with our mouths be true in our hearts as well capture not just our creedal confession cra- capture our creedal affection that we 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 would be more in love with the real Jesus because we have beheld him here